Gary Holt, I am the worship pastor here. If you don't recognize me, try to imagine a guitar kind of going right through there. Uh, there you go. Now you, now you got it. Uh, as Pastor Tim uh, mentioned, I think, early this morning, uh, our high school students are actually out right now um, at camp for the last few days, which means in our household, half of our kids are away. The two older uh, boys are both high school students, so they're at camp, which just leaves the two younger ones in the house, kind of changes the dynamic of the house uh, just a little bit. But uh, they took off Thursday morning at 9 o'clock from the office. But before we could leave, before we could go take them to camp, we actually had to take them to the school first to get them registered for school. Is there anything that kind of strikes the end of summer more than getting the, the kids registered for school, go picking up the school supplies, getting the new backpack, the new protractor? That kind of says summer is over, right? Well, for me, it's kind of a bummer right now because we had a couple of, of plans for the summer. We had a couple of projects for the summer that we wanted to get done that we had taken on that are um, quickly looking like they're going to become fall projects instead of summer projects. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do was to get our, our basement, get some work done in the basement. We have a large uh, family room kind of space, a big ugly space that we were, were trying to strip down all the old wood paneling and put up a new wall to kind of separate into a couple of spaces, build out a closet and uh, get the whole thing re-drywalled and new doors and, and give us a couple new rooms there. And uh, so we, we got started on this. We had, a, we had a plan. I drew up a plan. I had a spreadsheet of everything we were going to need. I, I bought some lumber. I made, I don't know, three or four hundred trips, I think, to the hardware store to buy stuff. Uh, got on our way. Okay, We got moving on it. We got the, the, the wood paneling came down quickly. I actually built a wall. Okay, a little proud there. I built the wall. Thank you. Yeah. I, I built out the closet. I called somebody to come do the drywall for me. No way I was touching that job. Okay, nowhere close to that thing. But we were getting some progress done. About a week into this thing, and we had drywall up. But uh, then we, we took a quick family trip to, to Tennessee for a few days. We got back, and VBS was right around the corner. And when your wife is the children's ministry director, VBS becomes an all-family, all-hands-on-deck event for a couple of weeks. So that was there. Now I'm preaching. Next week, I'm taking off for a conference for a few days. So suddenly, that room that was making progress and moving along uh, still hasn't been primed. Okay, It's a month later, and now we have drywall that has yet to be primed. So what began with such promise, what began with such intensity and a flurry of activity... Uh, began to quickly settle down and get succumb to a world of distractions. Now it's just sitting dormant and untouched. The tools are still sitting there lying like they're preserved in a museum where they were a month ago. Uh, the doors that I ordered are still sitting at the hardware store. I'm sorry, John, wherever you are, I'll come and pick those up soon, I promise. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't even like really going into the basement right now because it just reminds me of the job that needs to be finished, the job that needs to be completed that's sitting there unfinished. It just sits there as a work in progress. Actually, I take that back. It's really not a work in progress because part of that phrase is the word progress, and there really isn't any progress taking place. Okay, question, do you have any of those unfinished projects in your life? More importantly... <laughs> Thank you, Shane. Shane does. More importantly, do you have any of unfinished projects in your spiritual life? Maybe those look very unfinished like our basement, or maybe there's just one wall that still needs to be painted. 
But you have those areas of your life that have been sitting untouched and unchanged for a long time now before God. If you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about, let me ask it this way. Can you remember a time in your life when your whole focus was getting closer to the heart of God? When it seemed like he was doing new things in your life every day, but then distractions showed up and that passion slipped a little. Can you remember experiencing him in worship in a way that absolutely rocked you? But then a couple days went by and slowly but surely you returned back to normal. What about that message you heard a couple of years ago that God really used to show you your issues with anger or loving others or with trusting him? So much so that you desperately wanted to see change in your life. How is that going? Can you honestly still say that there's work in progress there? Or has progress stopped and now it's just become work? Okay, we're going to look today in the Old Testament at the life of Asa. Uh, Asa had a job to do, okay? God had given him a big project to go after. I think there's a lot we can learn from the steps that he took and maybe even from the steps that he failed to take. If you would turn there, we're going to be walking through this morning through Second Chronicles 15. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we'd love to get one in your hands. Uh, the ushers are going to be coming forward. You just raise your hand. We'll be look, they'll be looking for you to, to get you a Bible. Second Chronicles 15. Uh, as you're looking that up, let me give you just a little bit of context here. Uh, Asa is the great-grandson of Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel. Uh, so a- Asa actually would have been in line to be the king of Israel, but Solomon's family was, um, well, let's say they were dysfunctional, okay? And his, his sons fought so bad that the kingdom of Israel ended up being split into two kingdoms. There is uh, Israel, the larger of the two kingdoms, and, and Judah, the smaller of the kingdoms, where Asa is now the king. So get this picture. We are really only a couple of generations away from the glory days of the kingdom of Israel. A couple of generations away from the building and the dedication of the temple. Of people watching as the very glory of God fell like fire on that temple. There are people in this kingdom that most likely their their parents or their grandparents would have been able to tell them stories of what God had done. But yet already, God's people have fallen away. Distractions have set in, and they're in desperate need of renewal and revival. What better person to help them get there than their king? So that's where we're going to be starting here in in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 15. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. Okay, those are the two tribes that make up the king, kingdom of Judah. Uh, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a tre- teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For the great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation, city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. Okay, it was chaos. They had turned their backs on God. They quit looking at him. And frankly, their world had fallen apart. 
Verse 7, but you, Asa, but you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Okay, our first point here today is simply this. Start now, the Lord is with you. Start now, the Lord is with you. The prophet Azariah comes to Asa and, and speaking for the Lord, he said, hey, let's just take a quick look at the history of your people. Okay, how many times have they turned away from God? How many times did they take things into their own hands? How desperate did they sink? They weren't looking for God. They weren't paying any attention to his laws. Heck, they didn't have anybody even proclaiming his truth. But when they did call on him, when they did seek him, how quickly did he respond? He wasn't over pouting in the corner or giving them the silent treatment for the way they had treated him. He didn't answer back with a giant holy, I told you so. Now when they found him, when they looked for him, they found him. When they decided they wanted to be with him, he was immediately near. He was ready to come alongside of them and empower them the moment they made the decision to go after what he had called them to do. Look, it says that they were in distress when they turned to the Lord. This wasn't a moment where they were making progress and just asking God to come along for the ride. No, their progress had stopped. They were going nowhere. And without the intervention of the Lord, they were going absolutely nowhere. God's words were to Asa to remind him, to encourage them, that as long as the work he was doing was God's work, God would be there with him. There was no need for fear or hesitation because there was already a promise of reward. There was already a promise that there was going to be payoff for his work because God was going to be in it and God was going to be with him. We can start now and go after change in our lives knowing that God is going to be with us all the way. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, well, sure, Asa had that, but God sent a prophet to him. If I had a prophet come to me with a, thus saith the Lord, I might have a little more confidence that I could get out of this spiritual rut. I might feel like I might be able to get some victory in my life, but I haven't had that happen. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, what would have Asa done if Azariah hadn't come? Maybe he would be where I am today. I think we need to maybe just take a quick step back to chapter 14 for just a moment here um, to kind of take a look at Asa's life before the prophet walked into his life. Uh, if you look in chapter 14 at verse 2, verse 2, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Okay, this is the first mention of Asa in Chronicles, and the first words spoken of him was, are that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, this is very early in his reign as king. And oh, by the way, his reign as king began when he was 11. Yeah, let that sink in. Parents of 11-year-olds, let that sink in. Parents with former 11-year-olds. Okay, my daughter Maddie today turns 11 today. Okay, happy birthday, sis. Um, I, I love her. I'm her daddy. I think she's really special. I don't think for a second she's ready to lead a nation, Okay. Okay, but Ace is going after it early in his reign. Back in verse 3, for chapter 14, verse 3. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim, commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. Jump down to verse 11. The kingdom of Judah here is now being attacked. 
And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and your name. We have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Okay, Asa had not waited around to be hit on the head with some dynamic command from God to go after it. There were idols in the land, and he knew they needed to go. There were enemies of God and his people that Asa knew had to be defeated. Before the prophet ever came to urge him forward, Asa had already learned that the Lord was with him, that the Lord had work for him to do, and the time to begin that work was now. Obviously, this is not always easy. Getting started can be a challenge. There is the dread of the work that might be involved. Man, this might be hard. It might hurt. There might be a fear of failure, especially if this is an area where maybe you have gone after it and failed in the past. I mean, there is commitment that comes with beginning. Kim Lenahan was a, a, a world-class swimmer, a, a world-record-holding swimmer. She would train for hours every single day doing exercises in the pool. She would swim 10 to 12 miles every day. But when a reporter asked her what the most difficult part of her training regimen was, she said simply getting in the water. Okay, you see, once you've made that jump in, it's a little late to decide then you really didn't want to go swimming, right? Once you've made that jump, there is a commitment to finishing what you started. But listen, God's words to Asa should also encourage us. For your work shall be rewarded. If it's God's work that we're going after, if it's progress toward being more like him, then he will be with us every step of the way. It is never a futile effort, and the time for it is now. So, so how about you? Okay, what is it that the Lord wants from you? I'm not talking about your career or where you're going to live or who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to school, but what are the unfinished projects in your spiritual life? Start right now and go after them. What once fired you up about the Lord that is now sitting dormant in your heart? Start now to find that passion again. What is that sin that trips you up every time that once maybe broke your heart, but now you're beginning to just accept it as part of just who you are, part of the reality of your life? Where have you tried to take control rather than trusting the Lord? Start now to hand those things over to him. If you look for him, you will find him. Start now. The Lord is with you. Secondly, we need to commit joyfully Because the Lord can be trusted. Commit joyfully because the Lord can be trusted. Okay, let's continue on in chapter 15 at verse 8, where we left off. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage. It's a good idea since Azariah's words were to him to take courage. Uh, put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that had taken the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. Remember, this is only a couple of generations away from the temple being built. And yet it's already in disrepair and neglect. He gathered all of Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel. When they saw that the Lord his God was with him. 
They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. So 15th year of his reign. So about this point, he would have been around 26. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil they had brought 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. Okay, right? So a lot of animals. Can we all agree that probably smelled really awful? Okay. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. So they're taking this very seriously. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath they had sworn for with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them and the Lord gave them rest all around. Can, can you hear the revival and the joy coming out even in that text? Asa was already hard at work for the Lord, but now hearing from Azariah has him pumped. Okay, they start scouring the land, going house to house to get rid of all the pagan idols. They were tearing down the Asherim, which were poles that were built to honor fertility God. Okay, they are cleaning house. It's time to get rid of everything that does not honor God. Everything that might distract his people away from giving him glory. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, we just read in chapter 14 where they were getting rid of idols and tearing down Asherim. I mean, what happened? What gives? Why do they have to do this again? Yeah, that's kind of a funny thing about us as people. I don't know if you recognize this or you're aware of this, but sinful patterns in our life tend to be patterns. They tend to come back, okay? It's sometimes that very thing that we think we've conquered, that we've dealt with permanently, that Satan uses to draw us right back into sin. That's why we are at best works in progress. See, the real issue isn't us trying to reach some level of sinless perfection. The issue is, are we progressing? Is our trajectory taking us closer to the heart of God? In our spiritual growth or has our spiritual growth flatlined are we sincerely looking to be changed by him or are we satisfied with just getting the drywall up and living in our lives in unfinished space look it's not just about getting rid of the junk either i mean look at what asa does next okay he repairs the altar of the lord he understands that the key to continual growth is worship Yes, it was, he was concerned and diligent about removing the sin and the false gods from the land, but he was equally concerned that they get back to spending time in the presence of the one true God. So he gathers everybody together for this giant worship service. Not only those from Judah, but people from Israel that had heard that God was with Asa and were so desperate to have a little bit of that in their lives that they picked up their families and moved to be part of this. They sacrifice 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep and enter into a covenant to seek the Lord. A covenant, a promise, a commitment that God's people are making to him. And what is that promise? It, they, they promise that they will seek him with all their heart and with all of their soul. Okay, notice this isn't really a, a new commitment. This is essentially the same commitment they had made many years ago under Moses. But the time had come now for them to make it once again. It's a lesson for us here that it might be that the commitment we need to make 
isn't a new thing. This isn't some new revelation in our heart, but it's something that we've dealt with before, something that we've been dealing with that we need to make once again. As we recognize that we're falling short of keeping our promise, we have unfinished business with God. And like the people of Judah, we need to return to the Lord and once again commit our heart and soul to him. So they probably did this secretly, right? And this is a serious commitment. So they, sure, they approached it very seriously and somberly. This is between them and God. Well, not, not really, no. In fact, not at all. Okay, they made their commitment with celebration in their hearts. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets. And if that wasn't loud enough, with horns. There was joy in their commitment. There was celebration in their commitment. They were handing over their lives to the Lord, and they did it by throwing a big party. Okay, look, they were promising to God that they would kill anyone that didn't commit themselves to the Lord. That is a pretty somber thought. And I think if there was any ever a time for a somber commitment, this might have been it. But no, instead it was joyful, loud, exuberant celebration. They had sought the Lord and they had found him. There was every reason to celebrate, every reason to be joyful. I think far too often we look at committing our lives to the Lord as a moment of loss. We think of everything we're giving up. We approach it with somberness and reluctance. We mourn for that that we're giving up. We approach it with anxiety, like I'm not really sure if I can trust him with this part of my life. What might happen? It reminds reminds me way more of how I approach like taking out a loan or or spending a lot of money. Okay, my wife will tell you I'm I'm not good at making big purchases. I I I, I get stymied by that. I get slowed by that. I mean, first of all, I'm kind of cheap. That doesn't help. Okay, that doesn't help. But beyond that, I have this uneasiness about making a big financial decision. I am, I'm slow to decide whether it's a TV or a car. I take forever to make a decision. I'm usually pretty decisive, but I just get paralyzed and frozen by the decisions about do I want to pay more for that feature or do I want to buy the extended warranty? Those things hold me back and slow me down. Well, over the course of our marriage, we've bought three homes. And as you can imagine, that has done that to me every time. They bring you this giant pile of paperwork and you go through three or four pens signing your name and initialing every page of hundreds of forms. And after 20 or 30 pages, I start to get a little queasy. And with each passing page, there's just this impending sense of doom coming on me. What am, what am I doing? What, why does it feel like I'm signing my life away? I, I don't even know if I like the house this much. Is this really a good idea? Something, what if something breaks? What if something goes wrong? The last thing I am feeling in that moment is joy. What I'm feeling instead is the weight of the commitment that I'm making. The anxiety of whether or not I can even trust my own decisions on it. Listen, there should be no anxiety, no reluctance, none in our commitments to the Lord. When we devote our lives to him, we are placing our hands in the one who created us. What better place, who more could we trust with our lives? He is always trustworthy. And listen, the commitments we make to him, they don't add weight to us. 
Pressure is removed as we give more and more to him. We can joyfully commit everything to him more and more as he becomes our everything. There is reason to celebrate the progress in our lives as he changes us, as he transforms us. There is reason to be joyful in our devotion. Look, this was not a quiet, private moment in the life of Asa. He gathered a crowd. He gathered a multitude of people. He wanted them all to hear his joyful commitment. He wanted to hear their joyful commitments. And he wanted that passionate cry to resonate deep in their hearts. All to you, Lord, my heart, my soul, with a loud voice, with a shout, with the trumpets, with the horns, Lord, all to you. I know this might be hard to get a handle on. Maybe this isn't how you picture commitment at all. Maybe you see God more as that loan officer with the piles of paperwork and the sign on the dotted line, and you're having a tough time ever imagining doing that joyfully. You think or you've been taught that the Christian walk is mostly just about giving up stuff. It's about removing the idols in my life and just somberly trying really hard to do better next time. But you're missing that it's also celebrating him, spending time in the presence of God and resting there. Celebrating the progress that is happening in our own lives. He actually is asking us to sign our lives away. But we should be able to do that joyfully without reservation because we know it is worth it as we place ourselves in his trustworthy hands. With a joyful heart, Lord, here is everything. Yes, it does involve detaching from the idols in our life. But more importantly, it involves attaching ourselves to Jesus Christ. What we gain so far exceeds what we supposedly are giving up that there's no sadness. There's no mourning in the loss. With joy, we can say with Paul that we count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look, I'm not saying that that's always easy. I'm certainly not saying that that's always painless. But even in the midst of pain, we can commit joyfully to the Lord because he can be trusted. Commit joyfully. Third, we need to dig deep. The Lord wants it all. Dig deep because the Lord wants it all. I'll be honest, this is where it starts to get a little hard. Okay, it was one thing for Asa to run around the land and pull down idols that he saw in the backyards of strangers. But now it's going to get a little closer to home here. Okay, we look in verse 16. Even Maka, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Again, this is the fertility god. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. We're going to come back to that phrase here in just a minute. Uh, Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So Asa returns from ridding the land of idols. They have this giant celebration where the people of God recommit their hearts to him with this loud celebration. And then Asa comes home to find that his own mother had created an asherim, a pole dedicated to the fertility god. I'm thinking this was probably an awkward family moment, right? 
Okay? It was just, Mom, really? Really, Mom? Did you see what we just did? And now I come home to this. Okay? And she wasn't just his mother. He was the king, so she was the queen mother. Okay? She had some power. She had some responsibilities. How is this going to play in the nation? How is this going to look? I would be shocked if, at least for a moment, Asa didn't have thoughts of just, let's just hide that image, and I'm going to talk to mom privately, but publicly, let's just say nothing. But Asa knew that he wasn't standing before the people on this. Okay, his commitment wasn't to the people. He stood before God. His commitment was to God. So he destroyed the Asherim, just as he had destroyed the others, and then he removed his mother from her position. Took away the crown, took away the throne, took away the power, from his own mother. But then we come to verse 17. Verse 17 is puzzling. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. The high places were, were shrines. They were usually just makeshift shrines set up by individuals. And they were called high places because they were places that were up high. Okay, The idea was they thought if they, if they built these closer to the heavens, that they would somehow get closer to the God as they celebrated and honored their pagan gods. So when we read that the high places were not taken out of Israel, in spite of everything else that we read in this chapter, we have to read that phrase as, oh no, not again. Okay, this is a pattern in their life. Oh no, not again. Say that with me. Oh no, not again. Okay, so get ready here. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. And we respond, oh no, not again. Okay, this throughout the Old Testament, we see this God's people over and over repeat this pattern. They commit to God. They get fired up. They go after him. They seek him. And then they get tired and fall short of fully committing. And then they compromise. And then they start to fall back into sin. Pretty soon they're pulling the old idols back out of storage and until somebody or something comes along and reignites the passion and we do it all again. Oh no, not again. So why didn't Asa remove the high places? I mean, he did all this other work. Why didn't he just finish the job? Well, it doesn't say, but I think we could probably venture an answer here. I mean, for one, we know that uh, we've already established they were high places, right? So they were, they were kind of hard to get to. They, besides, they were makeshift. You could have taken it down. Before you got a mile away, somebody could have put it back up. It would have been nearly impossible, honestly, to police or enforce a commitment to keep the high places out of the whole land. So why bother, right? So Asa just stopped short. The, the writer of Chronicles is pretty generous to Asa when he writes that the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. Because if you look just one chapter later, we see Asa compromise as he deals with an enemy of God rather than defeating an enemy of God. He makes a deal, and then, then he gets ruthless with those who would question that compromise. He gets ruthless with his people. And in the end, we see him on his dying, on his deathbed, in his moment of greatest need, refusing to call on the name of the Lord. What happened? How did the man from chapter 15 end up there? What happened was that Asa did not dig deep enough. Okay, he gave a lot to the Lord. There is no way you can read chapter 15 and not recognize that Asa committed a great deal to the Lord. Even after he leaves the high places alone, we see him bringing gifts to the Lord. 
The Lord blessed Asa. The Lord blessed the people of Judah with peace. But still, in the end, Asa's commitment fell short because what God wants is everything. About a month or so ago, Heather and I uh, began into an exercise plan called P90X. Okay, now this will probably come as a great shock to many of you, but I am, I've never been really big on exercise. I, I know that that's hard to imagine looking at me, but, but I've never been big on exercise. So of course, when I decide to go after exercise, I go after one that is notoriously extreme and difficult. There's a, a fitness test you're supposed to take to see if you're even fit enough to do P90X. I, I skipped it because I already knew the answer. Okay. I was not. Clearly I was not, but, but I was committed to doing this anyway. Okay, the time commitment on this thing is really absurd. There is, there's like an hour long video you watch each day that you, you work out through. Three days a week, there's another particularly cruel little 15 minute workout called Ab Ripper X that's added to the routine. Okay, each video begins with the trainer saying a few motivational words and then right before the real torture begins, a, a two word phrase flashes across the screen. Any P90Xers in the house that can tell me what that phrase is? bring it okay two words bring it it's a last second reminder to remind you that the results you can expect are directly proportional to how much you're willing to put into it okay i could go through those videos every day i could watch them i could read through the plan i could get on the website and spend time there i could even half-heartedly kind of go through the motions of the workouts and see zero results from my effort Hours spent every week, a real sacrifice of my time, and yet nothing to show for it. If I don't bring it every time, if I don't give it all to my workout, then who would I be to stand there later and say, yeah, I tried that P90X thing, and it doesn't work. I mean, I give that program hours every day, and I didn't change at all. Look, real change, real growth, real progress happens in our life when we dig deep and give God all. When we bring it all to him. Not 50%, not 80%, but all. Otherwise, we're we're really just going through the motions at some level and then wondering why we have unfinished projects so many places in our life. Notice that Asa had to deal with some things that were very close to him. He had to remove his own mother from her position. Okay, there may, have, there may be things that are very close to our heart, but that are not close to the heart of God and that need to go. There may be things that are where we have passions that run contrary to the passions of God or that simply distract us and keep us away from progressing in our walk. There might even be godly things, biblical things that we have overemphasized in our life and and taken them at the expense of living a life as a complete disciple. Or listen, we we also might have high places. We might have high places that just sit there untouched and unstirred for months or even years. Sins that we may or may not even recognize, but that keep us from giving our all. I, I don't believe really that it was Ace's intention to leave the high places behind. I don't think he just didn't care about them. But in the end, that's exactly what happened. He left them behind. Why is it that we don't go after those high places in our life? Let me give you four reasons. Um, Please hear this. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not an inspired list. But I think these are some of the reasons why we fail to go after sin in our lives. Go after those high places in our life. 
First, this is a pretty simple one, but sometimes we really like them. Okay, it may be that we just like the temporary pleasure of that sin, or we like what it does for us. We're aware that it's there, we know we should be dealing with it, but we just choose to ignore it. It's an ongoing lifestyle that consistently chooses the sin above the relationship with the Lord. I would caution you to be very careful here. While there is great joy in committing all to the Lord, there is real misery in a life of mediocrity and hypocrisy, giving half or 60%. You may eventually find yourself saying, yeah, I tried that Christianity thing. I gave it like an hour a week, man, and I did it for years, and I didn't change at all. This today could be decision time for you. Are you going to continue going through the motions, but only giving some of yourself to the Lord? Or is it time to bring it all to Him and watch Him work in your life? What do I love more, my God or my high place, my Savior or my sin? Secondly, sometimes we fail to remove a high place in our life because we rationalize it. We try to convince ourselves or others why it it really isn't a sin at all. I mean, that's just how I am. I mean, sure, I'm undisciplined, but I'm a musician. I'm an artist. God made me this way. He made me undisciplined. Can you tell that one rolls off my tongue a little too easily? Okay, that one is well-practiced. Well-practiced over years of rationalizing a high place in my life. We need to recognize sin as sin, not blame God, not blame our parents or our upbringing. It's our high place, and it needs to go if we want to see progress in our walk. Okay, thirdly, we can fail to remove a high place in our life because it's hard to see and easy to hide. Okay, it may be an attitude of the heart rather than an action or behavior. I can fake this pretty well. Nobody really needs to know. In fact, if I do the right things long enough, maybe even I will be convinced that my heart is in it. I can smile and outwardly express that I love my brother, while inside I'm angry and bitter. Remember that Asa, like Asa, we we don't stand before man on this. We stand before God. God does not look on the outside. He looks on the heart. Let the song Jill sang earlier be our prayer. Lord, search me, know me, show me the unclean places in my heart. Show me the attitudes that I have that don't honor you. Help me to remove those high places from my life. Okay, lastly, at times we we fail to remove high places sometimes because we don't even know they're there. We don't see them. Okay, they're up high, they're out of sight, out of mind. We don't even recognize they're there. They sit in a blind spot in our life. We may honestly think that we're giving God everything, but we have these sins that are tucked away and hiding in the crevices of our heart. Just a tip here. While you may not see them, other people very well may see these, especially those that are close to you. Do you have people in your life that can speak honestly to you about this stuff? Who, if you were to say, yeah, I don't have an issue with pride, can look at you and sincerely, dude, are you, are you serious? You don't have an issue with pride? Let me tell you about your issue with pride. Do you have those people in your life? If you're in a small group, are you open to the men or the women in your group speaking into your life in that way? If you're married, there's a high degree of possibility that your spouse knows faults about you that you don't know or don't recognize. Okay, spouses, if you're asked, answer gently, answer lovingly, 
remember that at best we are all works in progress. So what is it this morning? What is keeping you from progressing? What is holding you back from bringing everything to God? Is there a sin in the way that needs to go? Is there something you're holding close to that is getting between you and God? You can deal with that right now. Start now. Remember, the Lord is with you. You don't have to wait and get this right on your own. Call out to him, seek him, and you will find him. Commit to all to him and do it joyfully, knowing that he can be trusted completely. Celebrate the commitment you are making. Don't keep it a secret. Don't keep it to yourself. Shout it out with a loud voice. Lord, to you all, everything to you. He wants it all, not some, not most, but all. What is it you're holding back? Is there a high place in your life that you've been reluctant to give it up? Commit it to him. The time is now. Let's pray.